Good morning. It is delightful to be with you and to see you and for you to see me. And uh, I echo what has already been communicated, uh, our joy that the restrictions have been lifted. Um, for, and although we're continuing to follow the recommendations, uh, it is wonderful to be together and to celebrate uh, Jesus in this place. Um, how appropriate, isn't it, for God in his providence to lead us in our corporate singing in really three, if you will, moods during our singing. Um, we're at the end of a 14, 15 month event where millions of people have experienced heartache and loss and pain. And that hasn't ended with the restrictions being lifted. That continues. And so as Linda read the lament, and I think I know what she was thinking about, that expressed God's heart as he weeps with those who weeps. And then as Mike led us in that song, expressing jubilant faith in the promise that God, because he is a promise-keeping God, will always be with us in Christ. It captured the joy of that moment. But at the core of it all, at the, at the kernel of it all, the center of it all, is the gospel where we proclaim his death until he returns. So God is kind to us to lead us in a time of singing that captures the full range, if you will, of expressions of glory to him. Praise be to God for his providential presence. We pray for that. And when it's demonstrated, we rejoice. Well, my name's Bauer Evans. You knew that. And I still do have a chin, despite it being hidden for much of the last 14 months. And although it may be a little longer because I'm older, I'm glad to see you too. And I want to welcome you, particularly if you're here and you're a guest or you're joining us, you haven't been back for a while, um, or you're joining us online, welcome. Welcome to Crossway Church. Uh, if you are a guest uh, and you're either joining us online or you're joining us here this morning, um, there is in the frame there on the YouTube channel as well as in the back welcome packets where uh, we'd love it if you'd acknowledge your visit and simply complete the card. We won't harass you or follow up with you, but we do pray for our guests and oftentimes they will ask us specifically to pray uh, for something, um, a need in their life, and we'd love to do that. So I hope you'll allow us to serve you and acknowledge your visit. Um, and if there's any way else we can serve you, let us know. But glad you're here and joining us. Uh, for our announcements uh, today, um, we are going to be uh, enjoying our first potluck uh, lunch um, the last Sunday in June, June 27th. Uh, there'll be more instructions, I'm sure, on that, but you can mark your calendars now. That Sunday, following services, we'll have a potluck outside and uh, begin the summer uh, together. Won't that be fun uh, to eat together and enjoy some extended uh, fellowship? That same Sunday, we're going to be welcoming new members into our church. We've had uh, five or six individuals who have expressed a desire to join our church, uh, and that Sunday we'll be receiving them and praying for them and rejoicing uh, with them as God has added them to our. So we look forward to doing that with you. And if you are a new member and you're planning to join us, yes, you must turn in your paperwork. And we need you to schedule your interview. Otherwise, we'll celebrate your new member Sunday on another day. <laughs> That's how we roll. <laughs> Lastly, I want to thank the teachers and helpers that completed their... Uh, ministry safe training uh, this past week. It was due on June the 1st. You all did it. Thank you. I did it as well as did the pastors. Um, and uh, although it's, it's troubling, the information they're providing, it's crucial that we uh, be aware of it so that we can um, serve our children and have a safe um, and uh, secure gathering place. Children's ministry regathers next Sunday outside. 
Um, and if you're a parent, we'd ask you to RSVP that you're coming so we know how many to prepare for. But we're looking forward to being back together. Um, I understand Chris Lachance is going to be teaching uh, the class. So uh, the world tour continues uh, with Chris Lachance. Please open in your Bibles to the second book of your Bible, Exodus. We're in the third chapter. We're continuing our series, which we began a few weeks ago today, entitled Exodus, The God Who Makes Himself Known. The God Who Makes Himself Known. And no more fitting a series uh, subtitle than our chapter uh, today. Last summer, uh, Jacqueline took me on a hike uh, to a mountain peak in New Hampshire. I believe it's part of the White Mountain Range. Um, the uh, mountain was called uh, Mount Asiola, I think is how I pronounce it. That one. Uh, it's 4,000 feet high, and it feels like 10,000 feet when you're an inexperienced hiker um, like me. But we made it, and we made it to the summit. And of course, it was a beautiful day. And when you get to the summit of one of these beautiful peaks in New Hampshire, you see and are given views that you, you aren't given uh, where we just stay down in the parking lot or even only climb halfway. We could see the, um, is it called, what's the highest mountain in the White Mountains? Mount Washington on the horizon. This chapter in the Bible is a mountain peak, unlike few others. And the view given here by God to you and me this morning is to reveal things to you and me that from this vantage point, and it's not an overstatement, makes sense of the rest of the Bible. And so for those that approach this passage, I've heard this story before, or for those that are new, we're in for a treat, but buckle your seatbelts. Because when God reveals himself as he does in this passage, he often reveals himself in ways that are unexpected and surprising that take us out of what is familiar and comfortable into the presence of the true God who was with us. Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire passage and then we'll pray. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, 
but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to this, to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, have appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the time that remains before your word, we pray that you would accomplish through these words and my simple offering, Lord, what you have done repeatedly throughout the history of your people, both then and now, revealed yourself to them, both for your glory and our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What would it look like if God began to do something really big in our day to day? What would it look like? What would we see? What can you imagine what it would look like? If God did something really big, revival, churches full, people gathered for prayer, great unity, great worship and song, conversions, a rebirth of a missionary movement, a new movement of students raised up to go to the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. People in their retirement being sent to faraway places. What would a great big thing look like? I don't know what it would look like in the beginning. But I do know that if God were to do a great big thing in our world today, it would be a turning point in people's lives as well as society. It would be a turning point and in the beginning stages of that turning point, God would begin to roll out his great plan. 
Exodus 3 is a turning point. The first two chapters covered, well, 400 years of history. The next 38 will cover one year of history and the life of God's people. It's as if the telescope, which Dan and myself introduced us to, over what God had done, now becomes the microscope. And it focuses very intently on one year. And this chapter in that one year represents the first steps in God's great work of deliverance for his enslaved people in Egypt. It's a turning point in his relationship with the nation of Israel. It represents a turning point in the in salvation history too. And because this is God's inspired word, meaning the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write this down, this passage can be and has been a turning point in countless churches and countless lives and for your life, potentially, too, today. It's a turning point because we are going to learn things about God today that will shape the rest of Scripture. What we know about God, how we think about God, how we relate to God. God will reveal himself in this text and make promises that will not only mark Israel's history and become a part of their heritage as a nation. And the phrases found here repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. But perhaps more importantly... God will reveal himself to the original audience and to us in ways that are intended to draw him near to us and us to him and lead us in worship. So if I've done my job today and led us through this passage effectively... Exodus 3 reveals a more intimate picture of who God is than we imagine. Exodus 3 reveals a more awesome, awful, all-filled picture of God than sometimes I care to think about. Exodus 3 reveals a more inclusive God in his compassion for the helpless that brings great hope to every people on the earth. And ultimately, Exodus 3 reveals God is with us. He has promised to be with us in order to act for us forever. Let's take a look at the passage again. First point this morning. Well, I'll give you my... Well, let's hold on to my main point, Izzy. Let me give you my first point, and we'll build to my main. Is the great I am who hears us initiates Israel's salvation and ours. The great I am who hears us initiates... Israel's salvation and Mars. I get that point from the first seven verses we read and just read in Exodus 3. It's a day like any other day for Moses. He's a shepherd now. He's in the 40th year of his career as a shepherd. Imagine that, those of you that have worked in a career. 40 years he's been shepherding sheep in Midian. A fugitive from Egypt, as Dan pointed out from the text last week. And it's a day like any other day. He's leading his sheep, it says in verse 1 and verse 2, to find fresh pasture. And he leads his flock to the west side of the wilderness where he comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
Now, up to this point in Exodus, God has been completely silent. And you've noticed that. He hasn't said anything. He hasn't done anything. His silence is astonishing. But in Exodus 3, and in these opening verses, it's as if God steps onto the stage, grabs the mic, and now he has a lot to say. And what he says is eruptive, disruptive, disturbing, and also tender and moving and glorious. Moses is looking for fresh pasture. He doesn't realize God is guiding him. God is looking for him as he does. And then in verse 2 it happens. An angel of the Lord, this is quote number one, is he appears to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Yes, a bush that was burning and yet was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Of course. Why is the bush not burned? When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses turns aside to see a burning bush. Now, I've taught this passage in children's ministry. And I've likened the burning bush to a campfire. But that really doesn't do justice to the original language and the depiction. This is more like a brush fire that... Upon igniting it, just explosively burns and with great heat singes anyone who's close to it. The closest I can come to it in my personal experience is when we do a fire in our living room. If I haven't done the kindling right, then I grab the lighter fluid and I light it up that way. And it gets hot in a hurry. And I do have a burning log and burning lighter fluid and it will singe the hair on my arm and burn the eyelashes and then we have a nice warm fire. That's what Moses is seeing. He's not seeing your fire pit. <laughs> and he's not seeing my Boy Scout campfire. He's seeing a burning bush that isn't consumed and as he draws closer to it the heat of that flame threatens him but he's drawn to it and as he is God through the angel of the Lord speaks his name Moses Moses Okay, Bible scholars, I didn't know this. When was the last time in the books of Moses God spoke someone's name twice at a turning point in redemptive history? Jacob. Jacob. Before he went to Egypt. It's personal. It's intimate. And it's merciful. Because God is initiating this entire encounter, isn't it? The first thing we see about the great I am, which must be foundational to not only Israel's faith, but our understanding of this gift of salvation that we have received through Christ, is that it is God who initiates Israel's salvation and ours. It is the great I am. Who initiates Israel's salvation and ours. It is God who speaks to Moses out of his merciful initiative and grace. But lest we forget what was going on during the 400 years of silence. Israel was praying for deliverance. For 400 years, Israel was crying out to God for deliverance. And how did God answer 
that prayer in Midian, hundreds of miles away, to a shepherd on a mountain called Horeb. It really brings to the focus that not only does God hear our prayers, but he's answering our prayers, but he often answers our prayers, doesn't he? In ways we don't fully see. But his good purposes to perform. Because at this moment of revelation, we see a second reality about God. That's equally both exhilarating and, quite frankly, terrifying. God reveals himself to Moses as holy. As holy. And we see that. In verse 5, quote one again, Izzy. Moses responding to the angel of the Lord saying, here I am. God speaks to him through the angel. Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. Here is God's very first address to Moses. It's going to be determinative in his relationship with the Lord. And having addressed Moses by name tenderly, personally, compassionately, mercifully, he now warns Moses. He now tells him, don't come any closer. He now commands him, take off your sandals. This is holy ground. God's first address in this new era of salvation is not, don't be afraid, Moses, of me. He says, Moses, don't come any closer. Take your sandals off your feet. The place where you are standing, the place where I chose to meet you, the place where I'm initiating my next epoch of salvation is holy ground. Not the mountain. The mountain's made of the same granite that Mount Washington's made of. Is Mount Washington made of granite? Well, Mount Horeb, I'm told, is. God is there. God is there, and his presence is holy. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be holy? And for Moses rightly to heed God's warning to draw no closer but to humble himself by taking off his sandals. In fact, Moses must have had some indication of what it meant because in verse 7 or 8, it says Moses actually hid himself. So fearful was he of both the bush, its flame that didn't consume the bush, and the voice that addressed him from the fire. Well, in the Old Testament, the temple is holy, which means it's been set apart for worship of God. And there are other things. We could certainly look at in the Old Testament objects that are designated as holy But when we talk about God being holy, we're talking about something far more fundamental to his being and existence, aren't we? This is the best I've been able to describe it as I've thought about it this week, and I've thought about it a lot. God in his being is like no one else you can compare him to. He's different from everything else. He's transcendent, meaning he's outside of time, And outside of space. He's set apart. From everything else. In it's majesty. He's morally perfect. That's how we described it to our kids. When they were young. He's he's completely pure. He's morally perfect. He's uncompromisingly opposed. To all that is evil. In other words. God is holy. And there is no one like him. And so here at this turning point in salvation history where Israel and we are given this view, this mountaintop view of God and his purposes. 
it appears to be a prerequisite to knowing the God of the Bible that we come to some knowledge that God is holier than we are. And his gloriousness, his majesty, his otherness must shape how we think and how we live our lives before God. My question for you, does it? Does it for me? Or have we over time, due to familiarity, redefined God? Brought him down to our level? Made him more a reflection of what we're comfortable with than the revelation we find in Scripture? I have. I begin to accent certain attributes at the exclusion of others. And so this text comes to me and says, Bauer, this is my gracious reminder to you. I'm not commonplace. I'm not familiar. I'm not controlled by you. And I'm certainly not tame. But apart from my initiative, I'm unknowable. But because of my grace and mercy, I want you to know me. In his holiness, Bauer, I'm unapproachable. But the thing I want you to know, after Moses stops in his tracks, After warning merciful words to come no nearer, I'm compassionate. And I've come to save you. See, if you don't have a category for God's holiness, then those other categories of God's righteous judgment, when he both returns at the end of the age, but also when we stand before him, face to face, and give an account for our lives and his judgment, which is true and just, it it doesn't make sense. But when you see this mountaintop view of who God is, then, and only then, does the faint outlines of what Christ did on the cross start to make sense. He is more holy Then I realize. If you're like me, God has become too familiar and his holiness seems not just mysterious to you, but even inconsequential. Let me encourage you. This passage invites you to take your sandals off this week. To be humble before God. And in his presence, to walk in a way more worthy of his majesty and holiness and glory, and he'll help you, for he delights to reveal himself. We've seen God as the initiator in salvation. We've seen God is the Holy One and reveals himself that way to be worshipped humbly. And now we see the great I am, point three, is he who is compassionate and draws near to deliver the helpless. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt and have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of a land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Five important verbs. I have seen. I have heard. I knew. And now something different. He calls Israel my people. Verse 25. I have seen the affliction, verse 7, of my people. The sufferings of God's people have become personal to him. The sufferings of Israel in Egypt have become personal. 
And in verse 8, something new here as well. He says, I have come down. I have seen, I have heard, I know, and now I have come down. Friends, God was not indifferent to the sufferings of his people. If they felt abandoned, if they felt there is a God who does not see, if they felt that God was locked up in heaven and somehow removed or distant from them, These verses remind us that the God who dwells in heaven came down. He drew near to these oppressed people to deliver the helpless. He is compassionate toward the helpless in order to deliver them. Isn't that good news that in one of the most glorious revelations of who God is, he displays his compassion with the language of divine intervention. What Moses could not do last week, God is poised to do now. His compassion moves him to come down in order to bring Israel up and deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a good land. He is bringing them up to a land where he would be king and they could flourish in his presence, enjoying him, experiencing him, obeying him, worshiping him. It sounds like Disneyland a little bit, or Candyland if you haven't been to Disneyland, and this is the this is the butterscotch road to the lemon drop forest or whatever. But the promised land is no candy land. They left the promised land. It was a land of famine. The promised land doesn't have a river Nile like Egypt that floods every year, irrigating the fields. It's a hard land to farm and irrigate. It require hard work, difficult. But it's God's land. And this land would teach them to depend on him in their pastoral care, in their, in their farming, in their life as a community. It's a land that requires faith in this compassionate God if they're going to flourish. And it's a reminder that God draws near to each of us when we are helpless because he is compassionate. Last point, last aspect and final concluding applications. We've seen how the great I am initiates Israel's salvation. We've seen how he is holy in order to be worshipped humbly. We've seen that he draws near to the helpless out of his compassion. But perhaps the most important thing God wants us to see, the climax of the entire passage, begins in verse 10 and concludes with verse 25. The great I am reveals his name, which is actually his promise to be with the people of God to save them, to forgive them, to keep them forever. Verse 10. Come, he says to Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses objects and says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Verse 13, then Moses objects again. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people, to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, note the letters, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, again, those same capital letters, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise you that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of those guys flowing with milk and honey. We learn his name. We learn his name. On this mountain top of revelation. We are introduced here to more of God than simply his character. He reveals his personal name. When you want to get to know someone or you want someone to get to know you, what is the first thing we do? The first thing we do is we give them our name. His name opens the door to relationship with him. He discloses his name to Moses and Moses to the the people of Israel so that they might get to know him more in a personal way. And his name, he says, is actually a promise. Verse 12, I will be with you. And verse 15, I will deliver you out of Egypt to the promised land. The great I am's name is his promise to be with us and to act for us in order to save us. God reveals his name in order to forge a relationship first with Moses and then with those whom he will lead to strengthen his faith and ours and to bind us more closely to God who reveals it. To us. A name with a promise, I will be with you. A name with a purpose statement, I will act for you in order to save you. And even though Moses' objections, which are understandable in light of what he's being asked to do, deserve more attention, and Dave will take it up next week, the focus of the passage is God's revelation of the name. Six thousand times this name, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D will be repeated in the Old Testament anew. It's as if God is giving us the key to unlock all of Scripture through introducing his personal name to Moses, his divine name, Yahweh. What in English we write as capital L, capital O, Capital R, capital D. In other words, the name of God means I am with you. But not just I'm with you. The name of God means I am with you to act on your behalf for you. To forgive you, as we heard during communion. To protect you. To provide for you, to save you. God promised his presence with Moses and Israel in order to act on their behalf. He came down in order to bring Israel up out of the land of their oppression to the land of promise. God's very name is his promise of deliverance, of support, of hope. And at the fullness of time, On another mountain peak of revelation. When God acted once again to reveal himself. This time fully and completely. And more vividly. And more personally than ever before. In the fullness of time the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. In the fullness of time Jesus described himself to his people as I am. The bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am 
the resurrection and the life. And what name was given by the apostles to the triumphant Christ after he was raised from the dead? Therefore, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, full, complete, climactic. Friends, if you have trusted in Christ, if you have been joined to him through faith, if you've received his name, there is no other name under heaven to which we can trust or call to this week to both invoke God's presence and ask him again to work on our behalf. He has offered to do that. His name has promised that. And so the question becomes, do we believe it? Do we know it? Do we take hold of that name in every circumstance, in every trial, in the midst of every fear, in the midst of every dashed hope and disappearance, in the midst of every tear, do we take hold of that name because we believe through the faith God has given us that Jesus is present with me and he will never forsake or leave me. In Christ, we have God's very name, which is God's promise to be with us. I close with this. I have a set of keys that has far too many keys on it. It reveals my senior moments weekly. And part of the challenge is, is that all my keys look the same. They really do, except for my car keys. The church key looks like my house key. The closet key to the utility closet looks like my back door key. They all look the same. But I found out, this might surprise you, that the church key won't open the front door of my house, even though it looks like the front door key of my house. And I found that the front door key of my house won't open the utility closet downstairs, even though I've shoved it in there and tried to get it and said some mean things to that door. This name is the key. But too often... When I'm in a tough situation, I grab the wrong key. I look to myself to fix it. Or I look to that familiar God that I've created, but that doesn't seem particularly effective in this situation. And I'm shoving that key in just as hard as it will go, but I can't unlock. But when I stand on the peak of this revelation, and I see that that distant mountain is actually Christ, who has come to me through faith in the gospel, he now gives me the key. His name is Lord. His name is Lord, that when I stick that into the situational lock of my difficulties or hopes or prayers, it unlocks the treasures of grace. And therein is the hope, both for Israel and for us. God has given us the key in this story. It's his name, which reveals He has joined himself to us, and we are called now to take hold of him by faith, faith in Jesus' name, because, is he my last point, the main point? In Christ, we have been given God's name to be all he revealed himself to be, and God's promise to be all we need him to be. In Christ alone. We have been given God's name. Let's take hold of that name this week, church. Let's take hold of the name that reminds us of the promise that God is with me in this workplace. And he is acting on my behalf. God is with me in this parenting situation. And he is acting on their behalf. 
God is with me in this church. And he is with us to act. God is with me, though my body be failing. And he is with me to act. How do I know that? Because I have a scholar, the degree in the Old Testament? No. Because I have the name. The name. Above every name. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you said it more plainly in the pages of Scripture than I was able to articulate. And for the original audience and for us, Lord, we are grateful that these words were recorded and preserved because through them you speak to us even now. In revealing your person, your work, your character, your name, you have revealed your graciousness in initiating relationship with us, your holiness in calling us to worship you humbly with our sandals off, your compassion in drawing near to help the helpless, not only when we feel helpless, but through us those we might help. But most importantly, you've revealed your precious name by which, by faith, we can enjoy a relationship with you, experience your presence through you, and hold fast to this promise that you, right now, are acting in this space and place for your glory and my good. Help us to take hold of that name in this day, this week, this season, for Jesus' glory. And everybody said, amen. Let's stand.